Good morning. Leif Strobel tells a story from when he was the legal affairs editor of the Chicago Tribune. Lee had been an atheist earlier in his life, started in his junior high years, and he became more and more resolute with that conviction through his college years and into his working career. But then his wife started attending a church with a friend, and she got serious about her newfound faith journey. So Lee started attending with her with the idea that he would rescue her from this. He'd attend church enough to figure out where all the holes were so that he could talk her out of it and that he could save her from this church. But in the process, something happened. He started to realize that so many principles that he was learning were true. And so he would go to church with a legal pad in front of him just in case he saw anybody from the newspaper and he could tell them that he was doing a story on the church. But what he started to do was to investigate Christianity on his own to figure out if there were enough reasons for him to believe. No longer to rescue his wife, but now to know, is this true enough for me? And eventually he came to that conviction. He came to the point of realizing that the evidence was so overwhelming that the doubts that he'd had kept shrinking to a smaller and smaller place. So when Lee was a a relatively new Christian and he was working at the Tribune, he got into a conversation with a co-worker one day who was also an atheist. And Lee invited him to church. He had felt that the Spirit of God was kind of whispering him to him, go talk to this guy. And so he did, and he began the conversation. And the guy said, Lee, that's nice for you, but you know I'm an atheist. You know I'm, I'm not going to go to your church with you. And at every time that Lee tried to push the conversation along, he got shut down. And he walked away defeated and wondering, what was that all about? I thought that that was the Spirit of God whispering to me and, and nudging me to talk to this guy in particular. And he went home scratching his head. A few years later, He was uh, now working at a church, and he'd left the the news industry in order to become a pastor. And there was a a, a guy who came up to him after the service one day, and he said, did you used to work for the Chicago Tribune? And he said, yeah, I was a reporter, and then I was an investigative reporter, and then I was a a legal affairs editor. He said, were you talking one day to a guy who was an atheist who shut you down when you were trying to invite him to an Easter service? He said, yeah. He said, you're not going to believe this, but I was working that day in that office and I was installing tile on the floor and you didn't see me, but I was on my knees the whole time putting down all these squares of tile and I listened to this whole conversation and the reasons for why you had put your faith in Jesus and how there was so much information that it overwhelmed you as a hardcore atheist. And that set me on a path to opening the Bible and reading for myself and I'm here today because I think you were sent there that day to talk to me. Here's the point of telling you that story. Sometimes we don't fully understand how powerful the good news of Jesus really is. It can lead to surprising, unintended faith discoveries and faith movement in our lives. And this morning on Easter Sunday, we're going to look at what may have been one of the first of those people who was moved from opposition toward Jesus to recognizing that the Spirit of God was at work in him and that he was sent by God. So good morning to you on this wonderful Easter Sunday morning. Let me extend a very warm welcome to any of you who may be with us for the first time. We're not going to have you stand up. We're not going to bring out the tinfoil hats to put on your head or make you feel special or anything like that today. 
welcome to everybody who's here in the worship center and also to those of you who are online. We're glad that you are with us today and you are very much a part of our congregation and our celebration today. I hope that you'll do what uh, Jesse and Christy suggested and fill out a connection card. Those usually end up on my desk, and I'd love to send you a note, and if I can find you over the next couple of weeks, have a short phone call with you and see where you're at and what you're thinking uh, about church, about God, about Jesus, about the Red Sox, if you don't want to talk about God and Jesus. Uh, they, they are at 500, despite Dan Shaughnessy saying that they would be 0 and 8 by right now. We're going to look at Easter from a different vantage point this morning, from the vantage point of one of the Roman soldiers. Our topic is a change of allegiance. And here's the question that I have in in walking into this. What factors would lead a person who was once opposed to Jesus or who did not believe in the resurrection to the point where they become one of his followers? What factors are a part of that? There are three or four moves to where I'm going with this this morning, and most of this is based on the passage that Jesse read to you a moment ago from Matthew chapter 28, but there's one verse in Luke 23 where there's a contrast, and that's what I want to highlight. Uh, Three verses here at the beginning of Matthew 28. There was a violent earthquake, an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Matthew presents two side-by-side accounts of Jesus' resurrection. First, we have the account of Mary Magdalene and the other women who were at the tomb. Now, these women had watched Jesus breathe his last and then die. And on this day, they were coming to the tomb, perhaps for the first of many intended remembrances when they, lost, when they last saw Jesus, he was dead, and it seemed that the Jesus movement was over. Let this sink in when you think about Mary Magdalene and, and the women who went to the tomb early that morning. They knew Jesus was dead, and they were now in grave honoring mode. Side by side, we have the account of the Roman soldiers. Some of these soldiers had taken part in scourging and beating Jesus, and in mocking Jesus. At least one of them had driven the nails through his hands and feet. Spikes, really, not nails, not little brads, big, huge spikes that would go into, essentially, railroad ties. Some had cast lots to see who would get Jesus' clothes. Another had pierced his side, watching blood and water flow out, proving that he was dead. They'd nicked the pericardium, that sack around the heart. That's why there was blood and water together. They had differing emotional reactions to the angel's message as well. Mary and the women were told not to be afraid, and they listened to the angel's report, but they found the courage to move on and to act on the message they'd been given and take on the assignment to go and tell the other disciples. Interesting note that that here, Jesus, through this angel and through his own uh, follow-up conversation he would have with them a few minutes later, Jesus was choosing a group of women to be the first proclaimers of the resurrection. It's actually one of the reasons it goes to the credibility because literature in that time would not have done a thing like that. They always would have chosen a male. Guards, on the other hand, shook and fell as dead men when they saw the angels. Both groups scared. 
one falling down like dead men, the other rising from their fear and going forward. They also had differing reports after leaving this angel who had announced to them what had happened. Mary and the women left to report to the disciples everything that they saw and everything that they heard. What was that? An angel of the Lord appearing with brilliant clothes had rolled away the stone. And the angel had announced that Jesus wasn't there, that he wasn't in the tomb, that he'd risen from the dead. Then along the way, Jesus himself appeared to them, confirming everything that they had heard from the angel. Some of the guards, however, went into the city of Jerusalem and they reported what had happened to the chief priests. So what did they report? Matthew says they reported what happened. This is fascinating because this means that the guards went and they reported essentially the same details. That the stone had been rolled away. They didn't know how it had happened. There had been an angel there who had claimed that he'd done it. That there was no body in the grave. There were no disciples around. And that they had fallen to the ground out of fear as if they were dead. All this gets reported to the chief priests. And then the chief priests and the elders came up with a plan. They would say that during the night Jesus' disciples came and they overpowered the guards and they stole the body away while the guards slept. This is problematic. For Roman guards to be sleeping on the job meant their heads. But yet they, they tell this story. And the guards took the money and then they told and retold the stolen body theory, which, by the way, still goes on to this day. People who still claim that. How does Matthew know all this? Did you ever ask that question? You read the Gospels. How does Matthew know what was said in the presence of the chief priests? If I were a cynical high schooler like I once was, this this is the kind of question that I would ask and that I did ask in my own faith, faith discovery journey. But you think about it. Who was Matthew? Three years earlier, before Jesus tapped him on the shoulder, he had been a tax collector, which meant that he was employed by the Roman government. He was a Jewish man who taxed his own people, got rich probably by taxing them a little bit more in order to fatten his own pocket. They were often despised by their own people, but he had friends on the inside of the government. All of a sudden, it becomes far more realistic That there's a reason why Matthew had access to this kind of information. Matthew alone, out of all the disciples. The stolen Jesus story began to spread widely throughout the city. But Matthew knew that he and the disciples at that moment had run away. And they were in hiding. So Matthew presents these two side-by-side accounts of the resurrection. Contrast the soldiers from that account with the centurion that we meet in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 23 verses 47 to 49 include this short scenario just as Jesus was dying. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. So here we have another contrast. We have the same group of women, a different Roman soldier, this time a centurion. This Roman centurion 
saw and heard the same things as the women who had been following Jesus. These were the women who were mentioned in Luke chapter 8 who were helping to support Jesus and the disciples out of their own means. It meant that some of them probably were, were wealthy people who had their own businesses and they had made it their particular mission in life to provide for Jesus and the disciples as they were going along this three-year period of training and of spreading the gospel throughout Israel. The disciples walked with Jesus and were in training, but this group of women put their money behind the mission. On that day, Friday, they witnessed the brutal punishment that Jesus took from the guards. Then they heard Jesus' words from the cross, the same words that we talked about here on on Friday night. Undeserved forgiveness, saving rebels, paradise, intimate care, future hope, the cost of redemption, triumph over sin, and the hope of reunion with God. Just to be clear, the centurion heard all of this too. Even heard Jesus from the cross looking out at the people who'd done all this torturous treatment toward him and hearing him say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The centurion had to process all of this at a different level. Now, a Roman centurion had to be a veteran soldier. They were considered to be the best of the best. Ancient historian Polybius notes that centurions were chosen for command based on proven merit, skills during years of service, and they were known for cunning, courage, intelligence, and strength. In essence, they were the backbone of the Roman army. The centurion was unlike the rest of the soldiers at the tomb. The guards who were on watchman duty through the night and who were willing to say that they fell asleep were not the best of the best. But the centurion was assigned and overseeing the crucifixion team. Contrary to some reports, crucifixion was not a commonplace punishment. It was reserved for people deemed revolutionaries and enemies of the state, those who were guilty of treason. Crucifixion was a slow, painful art of extending the suffering of a person the government wanted to humiliate and then extinguish. People didn't survive crucifixion. This centurion would have overseen many crucifixions and would have overseen the team of people who were in charge of going through this gruesome work, but he had seen nothing like this. That day, he had watched Jesus being interrogated but refusing to defend himself. That day, he had watched Jesus suffer yet refused to curse others or lash out in anger. That day, he heard the Good Friday Sermon from the Cross with all the things that we talked about, forgiveness and saving rebels and the promise of paradise to one of those thieves hanging on the cross. And then he said, it is finished. And he breathed his last and he gave up his spirit to God the Father. All of this prompted the only statement that we have in the Bible from this particular Roman centurion. Surely this was a righteous man. In that moment, there was a change of allegiance that happened in that centurion's heart. Max Licato writes this about that moment. If it is true that a picture paints a thousand words, then there was a Roman centurion who got a dictionary full. 
All he did was see Jesus suffer. He never heard him preach or saw him heal or followed him through the crowds. He never witnessed him still the wind. He only witnessed the way he died. But that was all it took to cause this weather-worn soldier to take a giant step of faith. That says a lot, doesn't it? So here's what we've seen so far. We've looked at two thoughts that Matthew presents side-by-side accounts of Jesus' resurrection. The women at the foot of the cross and the women who come to the tomb see it from the side of those who were supporting Jesus all along and believed in him all along. The soldiers and the centurion came from a different side, from the Roman government side, and were cynical as could be. Here's the big idea that I'm getting at. Life-hardened people often become Jesus' boldest believers. Life-hardened people who've seen the worst that life can throw at us often become those who cling to the hope that we find in Christ more carefully, more solidly than anybody else. So there's this one verse that was drawing my attention this week. It's verse 47 of Luke chapter 23. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. Let's break down this battle-hardened centurion's declaration. Saying that Jesus was a righteous man meant that he knew that Jesus' character didn't match the sentence that was given him by the empire. Saying that Jesus was a righteous man called his own work as an executioner into question. He was probably thinking, what have I gotten caught up in? Saying that Jesus was a righteous man meant that his words and demeanor elevated him above the religious leaders who were at the foot of the cross that day, who were taunting and mocking Jesus. At least in his eyes, he realized that he was standing in a different place than them. Saying that Jesus was a righteous man and praising God meant that he realized God had clearly sent Jesus and that God was speaking through Jesus even in those moments when he was on the cross and that God was honored even through Jesus' death. Saying that Jesus was a righteous man and praising God meant that he had taken Jesus' words from the cross and the manner of his death to heart. It's only at that point that this man says, surely this was a righteous man. Where else do we see this kind of life-hardened, bold faith? Well, I I dare say that we see this kind of life-hardened, bold faith in Peter. Peter had been a fisherman who worked hard and was not afraid of the sea prior to Jesus calling him to become one of his disciples. Peter was the first one to declare openly and publicly, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter was the only one who dared to ask Jesus to tell him to walk out to him on the water. And for a few short seconds, Peter actually walked on the water and Tilly wondered, what on earth am I doing? And he looked down at the waves and when fear caught hold, he sank until Jesus grabbed him. On the night when Jesus was arrested, Peter was the one who leaped at the temple guards and he cut off the ear of one of the servants in that crowd with a knife. Peter wasn't among the timid. Peter had a life-hardened, bold faith. And sometimes it got him into trouble. That's why we like him. 
Church history tells us that when Nero called for Peter to be crucified, Peter refused to die in the same manner as his Lord Jesus. And so they hung him on the cross and crucified him upside down. We've seen this same kind of life-hardened, bold faith in the Apostle Paul. The disciples were at first afraid of him. No, not afraid of him. Terrified of him. And all Israel was stunned when Saul of Tarsus, soon to be known by his surname Paul, became a Christian. Even in that first delivery when a prophet comes and prays over Saul at that point and, and tells him that Jesus was calling him and said, you're going to suffer greatly for the cause of Jesus. And he did. Three times he was beaten with rods. One time he was stoned and left for dead. Even his friends thought that he was gone. He was shipwrecked. He spent years in prison and in house arrest. All of this because of his faith. Everywhere he went, he was loved by Christians and opposed by those who wanted to destroy the church. I remember years ago reading the statement from an older pastor who lamented. He said, everywhere that Peter went, they broke out in riots. Everywhere I go, they break out tea. You know, most of us don't live that kind of bold existence. Church history tells us that he too was executed by Nero. How about Thomas, the disciple who initially refused to believe in the resurrection, told all the rest of the disciples, I won't believe it until I see it with my own eyes. And all of a sudden, Jesus walked into the room days after the resurrection. And he speaks to Thomas and he says, Here, you know, touch my wounds. Put your hand into that spot in my side where the spear went in. See my hands and my feet. And Thomas didn't need to touch. He dropped to his knees and said, My Lord and my God. And began to worship Jesus. Again, life-hardened people often become Jesus' boldest believers. Luke 7 records another centurion who blew Jesus' faith away. This Roman centurion was deeply respected as a righteous Gentile by his Jewish neighbors in Capernaum. And when his servant was sick and dying, he asked them for help. And the elders of the city, think of this, the, the, the Jewish elders of the city went to Jesus and asked him to come to this centurion's house and heal the servant. Sometimes we get the picture from the Gospels that Jesus was in opposition with all of the Jewish people, but that's not true. All the disciples were Jewish people. Most of the earlier, earliest followers of Jesus were Jewish people. It was the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and ultimately the chief priests that opposed Jesus so greatly. And the elders in this particular town respected Jesus, didn't understand him, but they knew something of the power of God was at work in him. And when Jesus arrived at the centurion's home, he told Jesus, the centurion told Jesus that he wasn't worthy of having Jesus come into his home. But he knew that Jesus was a man of authority. He said, I know what it's like. I'm a centurion. I have these men who all work for me. And if I say go, they go. And if I say come, they come. And I know that you are a man of authority and you speak the same way. And then he said, but if you just say the word, I know that my servant will be healed. Jesus turned that into a teaching moment before he spoke the word. He says to his disciples and all the other neighbors who are listening in on that conversation, he says, I haven't seen such faith in all Israel. But this Roman centurion has it. I wonder if the word about these encounters spread among Roman soldiers. 
Because Acts chapter 10 describes the faith of a third Roman centurion. This centurion was named Cornelius. He's the only one that's named here in the Bible. We're told that he was devout, he was prayerful, he was seeking God. And while he was praying one day, he had a vision of an angel telling him to send for Peter. This man sent a soldier and two of his servants to find Peter to bring him to his home so that they could hear about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. By the time that Peter arrived, Cornelius had filled the house with all of his family and his friends. And as Peter was telling them about all that he had witnessed, especially about Jesus' death on the cross and being raised from the dead by God's power and how Jesus had fulfilled the words of the Old Testament prophets and how everyone who believes in Jesus would be forgiven of their sins, which transforms the way that we live. As Peter was preaching all of this, as he was explaining The book of Acts says that the Holy Spirit broke out on the crowd that were in Cornelius' home and it became very powerfully evident that they were all filled with the same Spirit of God that he was filled with. This all occurred at Caesarea, the new capital city that Herod had built in honor of Caesar. So here in the city where Caesar was worshipped as a god, Romans were coming to faith in Jesus and experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. Life-hardened people often become Jesus' boldest believers. Why is this so? Why is this true? Well, some people relate to the toughness of Jesus. It took tremendous mission focus for Jesus to go through the suffering and the crucifixion and to not lash out do not call on a thousand angels to rescue him in that moment. He could have done that. Nothing could deter Jesus or keep Jesus from paying for your sins and mine. Nothing could keep him from securing your path and my path to knowing God's grace. Some people have a nose for recognizing true authority. The Gospels say that the people were often amazed at how Jesus taught with authority, not like the teachers of the law, not like the rabbis, not like the Pharisees. And then there's this centurion here who recognized Jesus based on his own authority. You say, go and they go. You say, come and they come. And he likened Jesus' ability to heal in the same way and said, Jesus, I know all you need to do is say the word and it will happen. Now, this guy didn't give up his job. He didn't give up his loyalty to his country. What he did do is he gave Jesus first place. A change of allegiance that says, from now on, I realize he's the son of God. He's the king who came to announce a different kind of kingdom where God reigns in the human heart and in the mind. A kingdom that one day will come with power, but that's off in the future. And he had a change of allegiance. Some people are convinced by Jesus' ability to keep his promises. He promised that he would suffer, die, and rise again on the third day. And then he did. And he has has promised eternity with God to all who put him and his kingdom first. That's the promise he asks us to bet the farm on. This calls for a change of allegiance to the only one who conquered death. 
Jesus has demonstrated his authority over life and death through the resurrection. He is also the only one who offers forgiveness of sins and a pathway to paradise. The same pathway that he offered to that thief on the cross shortly before he died. He is the king, which is what Palm Sunday is all about, who announced the kingdom of God, which is ruled by grace. And all of this calls for a change of allegiance, where he is king and we are not. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what kind of defeats that you have faced in life. I don't know what kind of things who have, have hardened you in life, but I dare say this. Sometimes the boldest followers of Jesus are people who have been hardened by life and who hear the words of hope from the one who went through that kind of suffering in order to be able to deliver to us this kind of radical grace. Has the hardness of life brought you to the place where you're ready to embrace a change of allegiance? Doesn't mean you have to give up your job. Doesn't mean that you've got to move to a, a strange place. It does mean there needs to be a shift in the heart, though, to recognizing that we serve temporary kings who have arbitrary policies and truths that they hang their hats on in this world. There is one king who can bring us to God. There is one king who can forgive us of sin. There is one king who can set us free on the inside, no matter what you've done, where you've been, how much you may have opposed him, cursed his name, or anything else. Sometimes the people who are like you and me become the best and boldest followers of Jesus because we've been hardened by life. Is this true for you? If you are trying to figure out how do I make that shift of allegiance, it can happen very simply. You can pray a simple prayer like this one with me. You can do it right where you are, as quietly as you dare. Lord Jesus, today I bow to your authority and shift my allegiance by putting my trust in you as the Savior God has sent and by giving you first place in my life. My way isn't working. I am choosing your way from this day forward. I wonder if you pray with me for a moment. God, as we think about all the events of this week, last Sunday we celebrated Palm Sunday. We heard the testimonies of a handful of people who were baptized here and proclaiming to the world that you have changed their lives. Thank you that the gospel has this uncanny power to change the heart of even the most unexpected person. And I ask that you would change all of us. Change some of us who have been timid Christians into bolder, more confident Christians. Not arrogant Christians, but bolder. Able to talk about the joy that we have. Able to talk about the reasons for our faith. And Lord, guide those and walk with those who are thinking about or even in this moment deciding to shift their allegiance to follow you as the conqueror of death and the one who gives us great hope for the future. Bring change into our lives, good change. Produce fruit in our lives, the kind that causes other people to see the living God in us. Produce in us the kind of peace of heart and joy that overrides all of the hardships of life. 
We know they're there, but we know that Jesus has conquered them all. And it is on this day that you have the final word because this is the day when you raised Jesus from the dead and declared your victory for us. Thank you in his name for all that we celebrate today. Amen. Hey, I want to invite you back next week. Um, I don't know if any of you watched the Super Bowl. You know, there's a little event that happens in early February. But there's a group of people who put together a campaign and they had some ads that day that are called He Gets Us. And next Sunday, we're going to start a 10-week series that takes advantage of some of that campaign. And there are literally hundreds of churches around the country that are doing the same thing. And uh, if you want to order this little book, it probably costs you less than 10 bucks on Amazon. Just called He Gets Us. Look it up and you can track with where we're going the next several weeks. But He Gets Us traces the life of Jesus. And I'd really invite you to look at some of the themes of Jesus' life along with us over the next 10 weeks. One of the things I know about Jesus is no matter who you are, where you are at, in your faith development or your lack of faith development, He gets you. See you next week.